Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. You may have heard, Unchained is doing a survey. We want to know, how do you think we can make the show better? How would you like to see Unchained expand? If you could just take a moment and go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash Unchained Survey 2019, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash Unchained Survey 2019, your answers will be a huge help to me and my team here at Unchained. Also, those who answer the survey can enter to win one of five free CASA Bitcoin Lightning nodes, plus a free year of CASA's gold membership, including a multi-six security app for iPhone and Android, a Trezor hardware wallet, a CASA Faraday bag, and 24-7 support. Those of you interested in learning more about CASA or about protecting your Bitcoin investment generally should check out my interview with CEO Jeremy Welch. Thank you to CASA for donating. Again, the URL is surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019. Go there now to give us your thoughts on the future direction of Unchained and enter the giveaway. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or leveraged options trading, Kraken is the place for you. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. My guest today is Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation and a lecturer at Singularity University. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me, Laura. In a short time, you and the Human Rights Foundation have become visible forces and advocates for Bitcoin and decentralized technologies. But before we get to your work in the blockchain space, let's start with some background. What does the Human Rights Foundation do? The Human Rights Foundation promotes civil and political liberties like free speech, freedom of and from religion, freedom of assembly, the right to participate in your government. And we promote these rights and we protect these rights in what we call closed societies or authoritarian countries, um, countries that are ruled by uh, some sort of repressive government, whether it's a dictatorship or a king or a tyrant or, or a military junta. And something that surprised me when I was researching this was that it was just founded in 2005? Incorporated in 2005 and we started operations in 2006, correct? And what have the, been the biggest campaigns so far? Well, in many ways, Thor Halverson, our founder, started the Human Rights Foundation as a reaction to what wasn't happening with regard to the world's worst human rights violations. So there were a lot of countries, and still are, unfortunately, ranging from 
North Korea to Eritrea to Uzbekistan, where they don't get a huge amount of media attention in certain aspects. And there's just not a lot of funding or support available to help people inside. And the Human Rights Foundation is, is in many ways kind of like acting as a voice for the voiceless and as a support network for people who live under these extremely repressive environments. And it's a lot more people than you might think. Roughly 4 billion people, billion with a B, uh, live under an authoritarian government today. And those are people that can't do some things that you might take for granted. For example, they can't write an op-ed in the newspaper. They can't sue their government. They have no real way to hold their government accountable. They can't start a nonprofit like an Amnesty International or like a Greenpeace. Uh, they can't really do effective environmental work. Uh, they can't do good good effective whistleblowing work. They can't even really do good work when it comes to, um, you know, the areas of labor rights or even religion. So there's a vast percentage, about 52% of humanity, uh, whose, whose rights and freedoms are really restricted in this way. And HRF was founded because it's not just for moral reasons that we want to make sure that everybody has human rights. It's not just because it's the right thing. It also affects everything about humanity. So just to give your listeners some data Something like 96% of all refugees come from authoritarian countries. Something like 18 of the top 20 poorest countries, the ones that are in the most abject poverty, 18 of those 20 countries are dictatorships. 23 of the top 25 countries with the worst access to drinking water are dictatorships. And if you look at things like patent rates, literacy rates, um, violence, death, homicides, all of these things are, are not just correlated, but causally linked with bad governance. So we believe that no matter what you care about, whether it's peace or gender equality uh, or, or to religious tolerance or scientific innovation or having a good welfare state, no matter wh what you care about, you know, in your life and what you care about for humans, democracy and human rights matter. So since my podcast isn't really a political podcast, and if my listeners are anything like me, their news intake is pretty high in crypto, but somewhat low on everything else, I just want to quickly and briefly define some terms that I imagine you'll probably use fairly frequently throughout this episode. So first, j just what are human rights? So human rights is a, an umbrella concept that can cover a lot of things. I'm using it primarily to describe civil and political rights or and civil it, are, and political liberties, which are similar to what's in the U.S. Bill of Rights, uh, the, the US, in the U.S. Constitution, the UN's International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which was uh, came into existence uh, three, four decades ago. So these are things like, again, the right to protest, uh, the right to participate in your government, the right to speak freely, the right to believe what you want to believe, the right to be free from torture and unjust punishment, uh, the right to privacy, etc. This is traditionally what, what what I mean when I when I say human rights. I'm talking about um, basically rights and liberties. And then earlier when you were talking about like authoritarian governments, so how would you define that? And is the opposite always democracy or like what type of government, you know, are you in sure. favor of? The Human Rights Foundation as a nonprofit generally looks at governments and breaks them down into three types. There are fully authoritarian governments where power is invested entirely in one person or one small group of people. This would be, for example, in North Korea, in China, in Cuba, in Saudi Arabia different formats, but the same general idea. 
Then there are competitive authoritarian countries. So this would be something like Hungary, for instance, which is a country where there's a political party that's eroding power uh, from the opposition and kind of creating uh, like a like you're seeing a dictatorship start to be born. What what competitive authoritarian states do is rig elections. They stack their cronies on the judiciary. They start to uh, kind of manipulate the legislature. They attack independent media. Um, and a third type of government is what we would call liberal democracy, more or less. So these are, you know, more or less free and open countries. There's no black and white from Norway to North Korea is an enormous amount of shades of gray, right? But generally speaking, these are the three types of governments that we analyze. Uh, and we, we focus our efforts on helping people who live under competitive authoritarian states and, and fully authoritarian states. And what are the problems in human rights that you think cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies could help resolve? Well, it's interesting because I think the human rights background for me and the time spent with people who live and who, who suffer under and who work under authoritarian governments actually gave me a respect for the revolution that Bitcoin started. When you think about the issue of control and what do governments control and how do they control people? A lot of it starts with money and economics, but you don't really think of it that way. So for example, at most human rights conferences, currency and payments and economics are not on the agenda at all. But then again, what happens when a dictator wants to shut down a nonprofit? What happens when Mr. Putin, for example, wants to close down an independent media outlet? One of the first things they do is shut down their bank account, right? When a government wants to sort of persecute a particular group of people, for example, um, they may make that group of people not able to, to purchase certain things or they may get sort of close them out of a certain part of the economy. When one government wants to hurt another government, they often engage in financial sanctions. Um, there may be financial surveillance attached to certain technology in certain authoritarian states. So when you start thinking about payments and about money and about how money works, you realize that they're intrinsically uh, tied together. And a really, really great newsworthy example of this would be recently in Hong Kong, protesters knew that if they used their octopus cards, which is kind of like an oyster card or a metro card, uh, a little card uh, that they used to access the public transit system in Hong Kong, the students knew that if they used their student octopus cards, which were linked to their identity, to go to the protest, that the government would see that they had gone to the protest. They didn't want that. They didn't want to be spied on. So there were massive lines of people waiting at the machines, which they normally don't do, to buy little cash top-up cards. And I thought that was a really good example of how payments and money are, are linked to basic civil liberties and civil rights. Yeah, so let's now shift to your story. How did you first hear about Bitcoin? I think uh, one of the first times I heard about it was in 2014 when I read Mark Anderson's New York Times article about Bitcoin, which I think still to this day is one of the best articles uh, about Bitcoin. Um, I also had some friends at the time who were organizing a fun little uh, festival in Central California in the Sacramento River Delta called the Femoral. And that, that summer I went there and I happened to be on a houseboat with Brock Pierce. And Brock was uh, certainly very excited about Bitcoin at the time. And Still is. continues to be. And he was an evangelist for it. And he really put it on our radar at the time. It wasn't until a few years later, though, that I realized that there might be an intersection with the work that I did at the Human Rights Foundation there's a, an investor named Bill Tai, who I know you know well. He was, who, I think, the third guest on my podcast. 
Yeah, I mean, Bill's been in the space for for a long, long time, and he was at one of our events in 2016, and he said, well, why don't we try and work together? And at the time, and he still is on the board of Bitfury, the mining company. So Bitfury, uh, with Bill's help, was able to come out to the Oslo Freedom Forum in the spring of 2017 and start interacting with human rights activists. And we started having conversations about uh, financial sovereignty and financial privacy and um, how decentralized money might help people who live under very repressive governments. And did learning about Bitcoin change your perspective on your human rights work? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it gave me a lot more hesitation and pause um, with regard to the status of freedom in democratic countries. Uh, I had always had a lot of respect for, uh, and I still do, of course, for what democratic governments had achieved in terms of protecting certain types of civil liberties. Um, but the more you learn about the way money works and who controls it and how opaque it is and how elite it is and how closed of a system it is in terms of who gets to make the decisions about who prints money, who makes money, who monitors that, who decides when to change things like interest rates, even things like the Bank Secrecy Act in the United States, these aren't things that normal people think about all the time. And even in the human rights space, I hadn't really thought about. Learning about Bitcoin got me a lot more curious uh, about how money is created, who gets to decide when a payment goes through. And of course, I'd seen this a little bit with, and I know a lot of people saw the WikiLeaks example in 2010 as like something that, that allowed this to come to the fore of the news for a little while was that major payment processors like Visa would were blocking Julian Assange from receiving payments on instructions from the U.S. government, right? And I think that, that, that that's, that's a good example of, of ultimately why something like Bitcoin is, is really important because at the end of the day, it's a neutral payment platform. Nobody can decide that one person can't receive money or can't send it. And in an age of increasing surveillance, I think that's going to be increasingly important. So as I started to learn more about Bitcoin, I started to look more closely at my own surroundings. And even I'm an American citizen. I was pretty surprised at the level of financial surveillance that exists here, um, the amount of control over money that the government exerts here, even in what I would call a free country. So it was really, really shocking and, and surprising. So that's one way that Bitcoin has kind of changed my opinion on, on the world. And how did you start incorporating your interest in Bitcoin into your work? Well, you know, we talked to human rights activists and civil liberties campaigners and, and civil society leaders from dozens and dozens of countries in very difficult political environments. And we talked to them about, you know, what they need. And a lot of them obviously need money. I mean, they need to fundraise. And receiving that money is often difficult. It's often something that can get delayed for long periods of time. It's often something that can get frozen. It's often something they're worried that uh, the bank is going to report to the government. So if you're in a country like Zimbabwe or Russia, there, it may even be illegal for you to receive payments from abroad, right? From like a do-gooder who wants to help you from abroad, a philanthropist or a foundation, right? Wow. So, you know, I'm, I'm hearing these complaints and these concerns, which are, of course, decades old uh, for human rights activists. And uh, I'm just sort of thinking to myself, well, you know, we can just send you, Bic you know, what if, what if you could just learn how to receive money with Bitcoin? And it's not that complicated. And, you know, 2015 is different from today and 2019. Today, in, in most of the countries that we're actually interested in, 
there's like massive local liquidity, meaning there's an ability for you to turn Bitcoin at least uh, into local currency, whether it's Nigerian Naira or Philippine pesos or Chinese renminbi or you know Venezuelan bolivars or Iranian real. There is an ability within as little as a few minutes from when Bitcoin hits your wallet and is confirmed onto your wallet until when you can be holding local currency in your hand. Uh, I mean. We've been, I've been interviewing people from different countries and through some of the countries I just mentioned, we're talking about 10, 15, 20 minutes to, to change Bitcoin into local currency, which makes it an extraordinarily effective way of moving at least relatively small amounts of money um, from one place to another. So you were just talking about Bitcoin, which I know you're a huge proponent mm-hmm. of. Yes. Um, but then, of course, there are the other technologies in this space. Mm-hmm. So why don't you lay out for me sort of maybe all the things in crypto that you think could be helpful for fighting human rights and why? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll just also just break down the three things in Bitcoin that I, that I think are important. And then we can okay. talk about how other currencies may or may not have uh, those things. So we have the deflationary aspect of Bitcoin and the fact that governments can't print more of it. This is very important. It gives... Bitcoin value. It gives Bitcoin something that's quite special. The censorship resistant nature of Bitcoin is really important. Um, the, the fact that a government can't stop a transaction, even if it doesn't like you, that's extremely important for human rights. And the, there's many aspects of Bitcoin, but the third one that I'll just kind of point out is the permissionless nature of, of Bitcoin as a financial tool. Meaning you don't have to ask a government's permission to receive a Bitcoin payment. You don't have to have an ID or a passport. So when we look at like the deflationary nature of Bitcoin, the censorship resistant nature of Bitcoin and uh, the permissionless nature of Bitcoin, we have a pretty radical financial tool that I think is quite revolutionary in the way that it changes the ability for people to transact with each other globally. Now, when it comes to other projects and other values, uh, there are some extremely redeeming projects being done by people, especially in the area of privacy. Obviously, Bitcoin is pseudonymous, and there are some serious concerns about you know whether or not governments are using. Not, well, we know that like European and American entities are using chain analysis procedures to track and try and you know, observe and surveil people and, and actually prosecute them based on their Bitcoin activity. It's unclear how many governments are doing that, but it's clearly a large problem. And the Bitcoin technological community, you know, hasn't really, I don't think, risen completely to that challenge. There are some people inside the development community that have made amazing tools that do make it possible for you to at least not be the lowest hanging fruit if you practice good operational security. We've done some uh, research on this uh, that was sponsored by the Zcash Foundation, actually, into into the privacy of cryptocurrencies. And Eric Wall, who's a privacy technology fellow at HRF, uh, did two really good pieces on, you know, just how private is Bitcoin. I know. Um, in, that first in, one was amazing. In, 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 in both a software and the hardware point of view. And and the answer is is not too dissimilar from, like, encrypted communications. I mean, it really depends on how... How how what how good is your operational security? You know, and even if you have perfect operational security, you can still get compromised, right? So that's why projects like Zcash and Monero are very important. Um, not only are they for let's say very technically savvy users, I think real options when it comes to needing to privately send money to each other, they are aspirational, meaning they they inspire everyone else in the industry and community to to make uh, more privacy features. So I think that those are two projects that are that are quite important. Um, and then we have, uh, I think, the, the 
technology of the day, uh, uh, or at least of this week, uh, which is uh, Facebook's project, Libra, right? Which I will say, I think, has probably a, a very large chance of having a really positive impact on humanity. A lot of the things that I find really amazing about Bitcoin are its ability to do these kind of like fast borderless payments, right? Um, now, well, we should be clear in as much as Libra as a, as a piece, as a money, as a piece of technology is not decentralized. It's controlled by a bunch of validators. It's not censorship resistant. Um, and ultimately it, it at least won't be at the beginning, uh, permissionless. You're going to, according to the marketing materials I've seen, you're going to have to, um, uh, prove your identity to open a, a Calibri wallet to be able to, to, to own and control, uh, Libra, at least at the beginning. They're promising, a you know, a transition to some sort of permissionless environment, which of course sounds exciting. Um, but that's um, that's something that's difficult to do uh, once you have a permission system. There are a yeah, lot of obstacles to that. They wrote it. They'll do it over five years or something. Yeah. So we'll have to see. I mean, look, I don't, you know, the question is, do people trust Facebook on their promises? And I think that's a really fair question to ask. That, that's almost a euphemistic statement. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's quite fair to distrust Facebook on everything they say. But it's better that they say these things than not. And I think I think from what I've seen so far, it's only been a matter of hours as we sit here, let's say, since um, the technical details of what, what Libra is supposed to be has been announced. But from people I respect who are very technical and who look into things quite deeply and are very skeptical – of most projects have actually said that like, this seems like this was very impressively thought out and it seems like it could, it could be positive for the world. Again, this would be a type of cryptocurrency that's, that's not permit. It doesn't have that permissionless feature that Bitcoin has. It doesn't have that censorship resistant feature that Bitcoin has. And it certainly doesn't have the deflationary uh, aspect that Bitcoin has. It's, it's going to be a stable asset backed by fiat currencies, right? So, it will probably track, of course, over time with things like the dollar and yen, which are inflationary. So what's interesting to me is that it has use and value, but it doesn't compete at all with the three things that make Bitcoin really special to me. So I think it's a very complementary technology. Now, I've said a lot of positive things about Libra. I think the main suspicions that I have are around privacy and the collection of information and behavioral and payment data. I don't know exactly how this project's going to work. I do know that they want companies and entities to pay a lot of money to be validators, right? And, and a lot of those people have already entered into those agreements. And you have to think of like, why would you want to be a validator, right? Like what, what, is, what is in it for you? And my fear is that over time, validators will collect data about how payments work in a way that might be intrusive onto our, into our lives and, 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 and infringe upon our, our privacies. I certainly don't trust Facebook with my own data. So I, I would ask you, I mean, do you trust them with your money? Um, I, I think that there is a possibility, again, that this is like a positive force and something that will help break down barriers, hopefully, between different economies and possibly be quite a good thing for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies um, as it introduces potentially hundreds of millions of people to the idea of money that's not provided by the state, right? So that to me is, is, is interesting, but we have to be careful that we aren't building the world's largest financial surveillance machine. I mean, we, we know what happens when the ability to 
kind of control money is mixed with a near limitless ability to surveil you. That's what's happening in China today with, with WeChat. Um, this is a, an app that uh, basically most urban Chinese people use for virtually everything. And it knows an enormous amount about you and you use it for all your payments. And payments say more about you than your words, right? So I think we need to be very um, skeptical about the privacy aspects of Libra. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't exist yet. And we have time as, uh, I think, like human rights activists, as concerned members of the cryptocurrency industry, as investors in Libra perhaps are listening to your, to your show, to, to hold them as honest as possible with regard to how they're going to treat user data and how the system will work to make sure that it's not, uh, you know, a basically a, a personal data eating machine. I, I think from what I've read and what I understand, there are ways in which in which Libra can can be relatively privacy protecting. Uh, they have pointed out that they would like to make this a pseudonymous uh, currency, kind of like Bitcoin, which is surprising and certainly positive to hear. Um, but again, uh, we need to be worried about like what the validators are gaining, you know, from from running these 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 validation nodes, and uh, we need to be worried about how they can sort of chart payments and how they can potentially censor payments. So the world needs to be like very focused on on that, and hopefully we can keep Facebook honest and we can keep the Libra project something that that is a net positive f for humanity. So I mean, I've, I'm sure you saw that they've been they are working with these other nonprofits. So could you see your your or the Human Rights Foundation working with them? We already work with Facebook as a sort of I guess the mother entity. And I think our strategy has been, over the years, uh, we we also work with Twitter, uh, who's a right. awesome no, I partner with and Libra. sponsor. With Libra. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is the Human Rights Foundation works with tech companies because our philosophy is we would rather have them involved in this work than than not. Like I, I want these companies to be listening to the stories of human rights activists and to be understanding the challenges that people face in oppressive governments. So in the same way that like the Facebook policy team may come to our events and be involved in our work. Yes, we would love for the Libra policy team to also be there or the Libra engineers to also be there so they can understand some of the obstacles that people are facing around the world. It sounds like from the marketing materials that Libra is very much targeted towards disenfranchised people. Yeah. And I think that they need to be in touch with initiatives like the Open Money Initiative um, and some of the other organizations that we work with at HRF so, so that they can actually understand like what are the financial barriers that people face in these different countries and how can Libra be a force for good in these places. I think, yes, that would be a really good dialogue to have. Have. All right. So we're going to talk about the open money initiative a little bit later, but I actually wanted to pick up on a couple of things you said. One was you just mentioned something about the, the relationship between money and state. Mm -hmm. what do, how would you describe a healthy relationship between money and state? Well, this might sound radical, but uh, I think in a hundred years, people will look back in time and think that it was kind of crazy that there was a total monopoly on money by governments whether it was democracies or dictatorships. I think that a healthier relationship is is probably something like where there's a, a, a separation of powers. And I'll add some color to that. In the same way that political power, we now think of, or at least I hope most of your listeners think of, tyranny or dictatorship as like a backwards idea, backwards concept, and that democracy ruled by the people is a more fair and just system. And it provides checks on power, 
checks on arbitrary power, right? Then we have information, right? So I, I would also hope that, that your listeners would, would maybe consider that uh, the open internet where anyone can permissionlessly access information is a better system of information than what we've had previously, which was sort of like ivory tower and, and government controlled information, right? So decentralizing political power and decentralizing information, I think have been really uh, very progressive, positive forces for humanity. I, I want to make the same case for money. I think that money needs to be uh, decentralized. I think that people need to be able to be more involved in the creation and distribution of money. And that technology like Bitcoin allows that. In the same way that technology like the, the printing press or the internet allowed for the distribution and decentralization of information and that technology like democracy and voting uh, sort of decentralized uh, you know, political power away from tyranny. I, I, that's my sort of, I guess, radical idea. But I, I, I really believe that an open financial system will be just as healthy for the world as, a, as an open political system and as an open information system. And when you were talking earlier about how the Human Rights Foundation does work with companies like Facebook and Twitter, uh -huh. um, in general, like you have a huge technology focus, I feel like, at the foundation. That's just my perception, yes. you know, from the Freedom Forum and just some other things. Uh, so why why is that? My very first project at the Human Rights Foundation in the summer of uh, 2007 was to put together materials to be sent to the Cuban underground library movement. So it was actually DVDs of foreign films dubbed into Spanish that were things like V for Vendetta and Braveheart. Um, and, you know, we did this because information is power, right? At the end of the day, the Cuban government, and this is, this, this obviously, you know, 12, 13 years later has changed in as much as the Cuban people have a lot more access to the internet via this sort of paquete system where uh, neighborhoods get information from the outside world on satellites and then distribute them amongst their communities. But before that, you know, you basically only were able to understand what the government provided you, which was obviously a very brainwashed kind of very limited amount of information about how great the Cuban government was and how evil everybody else was. So by giving people books like Animal Farmer, 1984 in Spanish, or by giving them access to foreign films that talked about, you know, the, the struggle for democracy, uh, this was a very popular program. And it was something that made me realize how important literally information technology at least was going to be in the struggle for human rights. Um, later in my career, I worked a lot on our North Korea programs. So we, we've been sort of smuggling outside information into North Korea uh, for a long time. And that was originally done through literally tying a bag to a balloon and floating it from South Korea over the DMZ into North Korea and then having a small acid timer go off and the bag would open and DVDs and dollar bills and candy and flash drives would drop into North Korea um, as, a, as a just kind of a omen and a, like a goodwill gesture from the outside world. More recently, we, we've tapped into the markets that are bustling every day on the border between China and North Korea. And the North Korean refugees that we work with send in information on flash drives through there. So this, this further reinforced, uh, at least my personal belief, that information was going to be the key uh, in many ways to, to human rights. Over the years, we also worked on um, information security. So like helping activists learn how to stay safe with their communications by using tools like Signal and I guess trying to get a better understanding of 
how to stay safe online and how to be you know not the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to their communications and i think now you know financial freedom and financial privacy and financial sovereignty are just as if not even more important than all of those things especially as we head deeper into the information age. I mean, to underline an example I, I gave you before, today in Hong Kong, people still have the chance to use paper money to top up public transportation cards and to buy SIM cards so that they can plug them into their phone and use telegram groups without disclosing their identity. They still have that option of using cash. They won't in five years or 10 years. There won't mm-hmm. be any paper money left. There's only 8, 8% of the world's daily transactions today are our paper or metal, 92%, and that's probably a conservative estimate, of all the daily financial transactions in the world are digital. And that's only going to go towards zero as we as we head through the next decade. So we need private decentralized money. This is very, very, very important. Otherwise, you know, governments will be able to control their people and corporations will be able to, you know, control people as well. So private and decentralized money and, and I believe that ultimately these two things can come together in the form of Bitcoin and other projects, will be a bulwark against authoritarianism and, and the surveillance state. I think that's, that's kind of obvious at this point. We're going to discuss more about uh, North Korea and the corporate surveillance state and the Open Money Initiative and all kinds of things that we mentioned earlier. But first, a quick word from both me as well as our sponsors. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great, with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N dot com. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, Unchained is doing a survey. And if you give us your feedback, you can be entered to win some pretty awesome prizes. We want to know, how do you think we can make the show better? How would you like to see Unchained expand? Please take a moment and go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019. That's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019. It won't take long, I swear. And when we get all your feedback, Unchained will be even better than before. What more could you want than that? 
Okay, okay, there is something more you could want. You could maybe want to win some of the prizes we're giving out to survey respondents. You could be one of the five lucky people to win a free Casa Bitcoin Lightning Node, plus a free year of Casa's Gold membership, including a multi-sig security app for iPhone and Android, a Trezor hardware wallet, a Casa Faraday bag, and 24-7 support. Those of you interested in learning more about Casa or about protecting your Bitcoin investment generally should check out my interview with CEO Jeremy Welch. Thank you to Casa for donating. Again, the URL is surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019. Go there now to give us your thoughts on the future direction of Unchained and enter the giveaway. Back to my conversation with Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. Of the economies that have so far been using Bitcoin for human rights purpose. Um, where do you think it's been having a noticeable impact or like, or which country's usage kind of closely matches how you think Bitcoin could be used in its most useful or non-speculative form? Right. So I think at its current stage of its technology, from what I've seen, the most useful way to adopt Bitcoin and, and where we've actually seen people using it is as a cross-border payment, basically, a cross-border payment mechanism as a bridge between two monies. So I'll give more detail to that. But essentially, in a place like Venezuela or Iran or the Philippines or Nigeria or India or China, these are some of the countries that I've done interviews in, Turkey, there are restrictions on what local citizens can do with with regard to the, the world markets. They are cut off in some way. Again, that way might be because of their own government's financial controls. It might be because of U.S. sanctions. It might be because of capital controls. It might be because of lack of infrastructure. It might be because of high fees in the banking sector. There there are quite a number of reasons, but at the end of the day, you have uh, billions of people who are disconnected from uh, the, the financial world. And what we're observing through research is that some of these people are using Bitcoin as a way to access other money meaning US dollars, euros, etc. So you have like someone that I was just with at the Oslo Freedom Forum who's of Iranian descent and her partner she was saying uh you know her partner's family someone is very sick in Iran and her partner's family they live in London Bitcoin has been a way for them to send money to pay for cancer treatments in Iran. Otherwise it'd be very difficult for for them to send money from London to Tehran. This is not something that's easy to do, right? Yeah. Actually, so, just for listeners, I think Peter McCormack released that panel on yes, he what did. Bitcoin did, which she uh, she spoke about that there. So Yeah, this is a, a, a internet researcher named Masa who's pursuing a doctorate at Oxford at the moment. And she basically revealed uh, in this conversation that was on Peter's show uh, about how her family uses Bitcoin to send payments to Iran so that this person can can pay for cancer treatment. That was, I thought, pretty powerful. A couple other stories would be that, um, you know, in countries like Philippines and Nigeria, and these are massive countries, 100 million person countries, right? You know, tens of millions of people in each of these countries are non-resident workers. So I believe it's about 10 million in, in the Philippines and more in Nigeria. And these are people that live in countries outside of Nigeria and, and the Philippines and where they don't have a bank account. So it's, it's, they're at the mercy of like third parties to get their money back to their family. And in the case of the Philippines, a lot of these folks work in South Korea. Okay. So they need to send Korean won somehow back to the Philippines where it needs to be received by their family in pesos, right? So, 
that traditionally has been a convoluted, delayed, slow process, where on average, according to Luis Buenaventura, who's an entrepreneur in this space, who was also on, on Peter's panel, this can be you know, roughly about 7.5% is the fee you may pay end to end to get a 100 or a or a $200 remittance back from a place like Korea to the Philippines. So his company Bloom, uh, you know, started working in South Korea in I think 2014, 2015. Um, and they were able to get that fee down to 3% using a Bitcoin based solution. So that to me is uh, indicative of the power that, that I think Bitcoin can have with regard to these cross border payments that transcend governmental financial boundaries. Another good example would be, you know, to be more specific about Nigeria, Timmy, uh, our friend Timmy, who, who runs Bycoins, which is a, a Lagos-based sort of cryptocurrency wallet exchange. Timmy's great. Um, love Timmy. But basically, Timmy was was explaining how, you know, some, you know, very, very clever Nigerians are, are using Bitcoin basically to like – uh, to make money in an arbit in an arbitrage way on on the way that different currencies float against each other, so that they're not speculating in the traditional sense, meaning like buying some Bitcoin and trying to sell it when it's when it's hot and trying to buy it when it's low. They're actually using Bitcoin to like acquire foreign currency um, and and try to make money in that way. So it was it was really interesting for him to talk about that. And again, like I think in in places like this, whether it's whether you're behind U.S. sanctions in Iran or whether you're behind governmental sanctions in a place like Venezuela or whether, you know, you're just not really tied into the to the world financial ecosystem, Bitcoin does provide you this, like, lifeline or this other opportunity to get access uh, to, to, to the world economy. So that that's, like, what I think we can observe and testify as currently, like, I guess, like the use case. Now, as Bitcoin hopefully becomes more usable... Um, and as there's wider like adoption of people who accept it, hopefully, as as payment, let's say, then we can maybe start talking about it in the fight against uh, financial surveillance. We're not really there yet because no one really will. It's not like uh, you know the subway in New York City or in Hong Kong will accept Bitcoin for payments. So we can't really talk about it as a way of protecting our daily financial habits. Until it adopts that in that certain way, um, but we can. But it certainly, technically, could be the answer for that. I think the answer there is more of like a socially and politically, will it be feasible? Um, but at the moment, the way that I've seen Bitcoin change the world and, and be a liberation tool for people is as this sort of way to, to to neutrally and permissionlessly send money from one person to anyone else on the planet, and all you need is a smartphone and internet access. You don't need a bank account. You don't need a passport. And that's that's very, very powerful. But so right now, obviously, this is happening on a very small scale. I think I actually heard you when I was researching this that mm-hmm. you said that like less than 1% of the world's population has been exposed to Bitcoin, something like that. So what can you or HRF try to do to make these technologies, you know, either more useful or more widespread or, or is that not your role? Like how, how mm. do you want to get to this vision that you're... Yeah. Well, I, I think it's very similar to thinking about encrypted communications technology, something like a signal, right? In the case of, let's take Bitcoin, for example, uh, or even add all the other cryptocurrencies, right? I think best estimates are 40 to 60 million people by this point have interacted meaningfully with cryptocurrencies. Okay. So again, that's less than 1% of the world's population. So you're right in that aspect in terms of 
it's small when you compare it to the whole world, but it's quite a few, it's quite a number of people who've been affected by it. I mean, we're talking millions of people who, who've had their lives changed in a meaningful way because of, of cryptocurrency, right? And in that aspect, I think it's probably similar to the, the path that encrypted messaging has taken where at first, encrypted messaging, generally speaking, was, was greeted by the wider public with skepticism and certainly by hostility by the powers that be in terms of, well, what do you have to hide if you're using encrypted messaging, right? If you're a digital privacy advocate, what are you hiding, right? So these were like arguments that we went through in the 90s in terms of, you know, what what, what could what possibly could you want if you're trying to encrypt something and send it to somebody? It could only be bad, right? I think there's been a sea change in public attitude since then, especially after the Snowden revelations about the idea that, no, we actually need digital privacy in our communications. Wait, but, but do you really right. think that there's been a sea change? Absolutely. Because I feel like after the Snowden thing, like a lot of surveys showed that people actually didn't change their behaviors and they kind of said that they cared about privacy, but then they didn't really do anything about it. I mean, you even, even with the delete Facebook thing, which happened last year, like a tiny, tiny fraction well, of people actually did. Delete well, let's Facebook. actually break that down. So, so what I'm saying is that there are, there is more public support now, whether or not I say I'm, I support privacy and what, and I go home and download signal. That's a different conversation. Okay. I, I'm just saying there's been wider public support for the idea that people should have private uh, communications. Right. But um, I'm saying like, how do we get to those behaviors, which mm, right. we are not there yet, let alone with, you know, Bitcoin. So, so in the same way that there's now wider public support, after massive revelatory incidents like the Snowden and, and like whether it's WikiLeaks, Snowden, et cetera, um, into, into the fact that like, like the ability to the whistle blow securely is important. The, the ability to, to communicate like securely is important. Um, these things lead to a change in public behavior. Now the change in public behavior may not result in your friends using encrypted messaging, but, but it creates a different climate for companies. So after the Snowden case, one of the most successful things I can point to is that WhatsApp decided to add end to end encryption to its messenger. That's right. massive, right? They didn't have to do that. They did that as a result of a change of public opinion, right? So oftentimes public opinion can drive, uh, companies who have vast numbers of users, uh, to do things differently and, and, and in, in the name of privacy and security for people. Um, so that's been something we, we, we've seen happen. And I think we can hang our hat on that and hope to keep pushing in that direction. So in the same way, you're seeing Facebook today basically do something quite brazen, announce that not only are they creating a new currency that's not going to be just the U.S. dollar, but that, that it potentially will be permissionless. Now, again, I had a lot of concerns with the Libra project, but that's something that's unbelievable and you no one would have ever guessed that that could have happened five years ago in in the era of 2014 bitcoin if you had told somebody that in five years bitcoin you know facebook was going to be announcing its own permissionless cryptocurrency i think you would have probably been laughed out of the room right. but it, it just happened today so so big tech yeah. companies have the potential to lay a lot of the groundwork for this and in the same way that like i think a lot of people probably learned first about oh what is encryption because whatsapp or facebook messenger turned it on right and they got a little notification about it tens of millions of people got a notification about it on that day i think now through facebook a lot of people are going to learn what cryptocurrency is and they're going to learn that money doesn't need to be provided by a government yeah and it, but it won't, since it, it starts off permissioned yeah i it, wonder it, it, it won't be the the solution 
but it's, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think we have to be philosophically flexible about it. Even in the Bitcoin space, think about how excited Bitcoiners are about the fact that, you know, certainly quite a few Venezuelans uh, you know, have used Bitcoin, right, as a means of survival and commerce, etc. However, most Venezuelans, according to the Open Money Initiative, when they use something like local Bitcoins to exchange, uh, you know, their money in, into and out of Bolivars, they don't own their own private keys. They're using local Bitcoins as a digital escrow. Right? right. So this is not philosophically what we want as Bitcoiners, right? Quote unquote. Um, I think Bitcoiners, you know, want people to use their private key and have sovereignty over their money. That's not happening in Venezuela by and large. But it doesn't mean that it's not a good step in the right direction. So I think we need to retain a certain level of philosophical flexibility while still being skeptical. So. I guess what I'm saying is like even if you don't trust uh, WhatsApp, which was later then acquired by Facebook, or you don't trust Facebook with Messenger, um, or you don't trust um, Telegram, or you don't trust now Facebook with Libra, it's really good to see these companies going in that direction. Look at Apple. I mean, Apple's trying to remake itself as a, as a privacy company. And I think we should we should be excited about that. We should be skeptical and we should hold their feet to the fire. But as someone who cares about user privacy, I'm way, I'm really grateful that these companies are trying to like please an audience that cares about privacy and that cares about permissionless finance. Let's say, um, as opposed to the other model in the world, the Chinese model, where the dominant apps are so real-time censored that it seems like it's an episode out of Black Mirror, you know? So yeah. so this, this, these are positive developments, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's one of those things where I feel like there's, there is still that gap between what people say or, or, you know, and what they do. Because, like, even in Europe now, when you go and you get these all these, all these pop-ups on every website, you know, being like, we're collecting information about you for our cookies. Right. Everybody just accepts or, you know what I mean? It's like, there's no, I, I don't know. I just feel like, what are you going to do? Be like, okay, I'm not going to read this website now. I'm not, you know? So in that regard, you know, I just feel. Well, I agree yeah. with you on that. I do think people trade their freedoms and privacy for convenience far too often. In fact, at the Oslo Freedom Forum this year, we had an exhibit and it was, it was, it showed people who maybe haven't used WeChat before, how it works. And it was a sort of a translation uh, into English of, of the Chinese model of WeChat, let's say. And it was like up above the interface was this mirrored image of the word evil and the word easy, right? Because it's oh. so easy, but it's also evil, you know? So giving up all your privacy and freedom is convenient. Like it, it is something that people will want. So I think, you know, the, the, the answer for like people who care about civil liberties and personal freedoms and personal data lies in the technology producers and the technologists making something that is convenient. That's key. So WhatsApp Messenger is convenient. So them adopting what's like end-to-end -end encryption is a good step in the right direction. I guarantee you that whatever the, this wallet that, that Libra is going to be used with, you know, Calibra. Calibra, this thing's going to be awesome in terms of its user design. I can guarantee it. It's going to be super yeah. easy to use and it's going to on-ramp a whole bunch of people onto non-government provided money. And I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but that is the part that's offered by Facebook itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, again, like I'm, you know, skeptical of, of the impact that, that project, projects like this will have on privacy. And I'm, I'm worried, but at the same time, I think we have to understand that things like this are going to on-ramp more people onto the general concepts. And I think this is going to be great for Bitcoin, probably. I mean, I think it'll 
get more people interested. I mean, look, a lot of people are going to learn about cryptocurrency first about Libra. They're going to first learn it through Libra. And then they're going to dig around on message boards and email and newsletters. And they're going to be like, what is this Bitcoin thing? And then they're going to learn about Bitcoin. And that's going to be like, you know, the red pill moment in the matrix where they've, they've heard about Libra. And then all of a sudden, wow, this is the real deal. You know, this thing is actually permissionless. This thing's not, actually yeah. decentralized. This thing's actually I mean, you're a believer, <laughs> so, but I'm not sure. Well, I, I don't, people I, might I, just use Libra and might be like, oh, this is cool. This he, works. Here's I'm the thing. The this. world is a lot bigger than, than New York or San Francisco, where you and I, you know, spend most of our time probably. I, yes, Americans like are pretty blasé about privacy, but the people I work with, they care about it. Oh, wow. So if I can tell people, you know, in Zimbabwe or in, in Hong Kong or in places that are actually facing like a, an actual either authoritarian government or authoritarian challenge, they will rise to the occasion. I mean, it's amazing to watch what Hong Kongers are doing today. They're, they're going to, they're pulling out all the stops. They're wearing masks to confuse facial recognition and they're using cash to, you know, you know, quietly, you know, use public, uh, you know, transportation services and quietly use social media coordination services. It's pretty amazing. So I, I do have this belief that people will, will rise to the occasion. Um, they just won't do it where they're not pushed to do it. And in America and in Europe, um, we live in a, in a, in, in societies where we take our freedoms for granted, for sure. Most people do. Yeah. So I think the innovations will come elsewhere. That's why you're seeing Bitcoin be adopted in, in Lagos and in Caracas and in Tehran, where Masa at the Oslo Freedom Forum was saying that, you know, if you get into a cab in Tehran today, people are going to be asking you about Bitcoin. Like adoptions happening in these places, not in Los Angeles or, or mm. Sydney or, or Tokyo. Um, and I think that that's all cohesive. Like, I think that all makes sense. Um, these technologies will be adopted where they're, where they're, you know, most needed. Yeah. Yeah. No, watching the Hong Kong thing has actually been somewhat emotional for me because mm -hmm. I'm just like, oh my gosh, if I were to have grown up in a country that's like similar to the US and then suddenly have it become more in like China, I would also be like them. Mm -hmm. I would be like, oh my God, no, like this is terrible. Um, but anyway, so... I like we're running out of time and I have 5 million questions for you. And we keep talking about the open money initiative and we keep referencing Venezuela. So just talk a little bit about kind of like, you know, this initiative that you're backing and yeah. And what it is that you guys are seeing there and what you, what you hope uh, you can accomplish with the money, open money initiative and, and what it is. The human rights foundation has always had a founding focus on Venezuela and, um, in 2006 and seven and eight, it was tough because a lot of people thought Hugo Chavez was a great guy. And, you know, they were like, well, he's a man of the people. Now, today, it's uncool to support populists. It's uncool to support authoritarians. But at the time, people loved Chavez. They thought he was like the best thing since sliced bread, generally speaking. I mean, I just remember when I first started at Atraf, it was very difficult to have serious conversations about. And I would say things like, well, you know, he's like stacking the Supreme Court and he's he's taking radio stations off the air and he's taking the license away from TV stations and he's putting prison, you know, journalists and people just didn't want to hear it. They like really wanted to support him. Mm. And unfortunately, sadly, we were right uh, to sound the alarm on Venezuela and it has become the worst disaster in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, Four million Venezuelans have already left Venezuela and as many as eight million will have left by the end of next year. And the average Venezuelan has lost something like 25 pounds. Um, there is just starvation. There's absolute 
destruction in the form of hyperinflation, massive theft and corruption, environmental destruction, you name it. So this has all happened in the last decade and it has happened increasingly uh, since 2014 and 15. And we've we've always been an organization that's focused on helping civil liberties and, and political rights in Venezuela. We've always looked at uh, assessing the health of, of the country in that area, and we've watched it deteriorate. Now, what what was much more acute almost was the economic deterioration of Venezuela over the last five years. So when I met a, a group of um, very enterprising researchers and designers last summer who uh, wanted to to in- investigate, you know, how were Venezuelan IDPs or refugees living in Colombia, you know, interacting with the world financially. Um, I thought this was a, a fascinating project. So the Human Rights Foundation is very proud to uh, support the Open Money Initiative and their efforts to understand, you know, how can the outside world be helpful in designing uh, technology that, that Venezuelans can use uh, that can benefit their lives. And I like that they're coming at this from an agnostic point of view, from a platform perspective or a protocol perspective. They're not going there to push a particular project. They're going there with open hearts and open ears and open minds. And they're like basically uh, providing the world with a like a, a perspective on what do Venezuelans need? And what do Venezuelans need? Dollars, U.S. dollars. I mean, Bitcoin is such a very distant second. You know what I mean? And there are even like different types of U.S. dollars. There's dollars in Zelle and dollars in RTM, and then there's cash dollars, and they all have their different prices, right? So we're learning about this kind of amazing kind of tragic but also kind of fascinating uh, microeconomy that has grown in this area. And, and, and wait, and why would the value be different depending on what form it's in? So more people will accept uh, different types of U.S. dollars as merchants inside Venezuela. So you will it's easier for you to spend, for example, uh, you know, one type of app's dollars than another type of app's oh, dollars. Okay, so they have like a premium on the price. Some are more wow. valuable, right? right. Um, in the same way that, you know, digital bolivars are, are a different value than printed bolivars because you only need uh, printed bolivars for certain things and they're harder to access right um so it's it's fascinating to see this kind of like new you know again tragic but kind of fascinating to to see this new economy being born and um there's you know a lot of suffering and there's nothing you can take away from it but but sadness as the world does relatively nothing uh you know to help venezuelan refugees big institutions and groups like the world bank and you know i think organizations that typically help refugees you know I don't know. I just feel like they don't see Venezuelans in the same light as they see maybe Somalis or Syrians or, or Afghan Afghanis mm-hmm. yet. I mean, just even though it's the exact same human situation, uh, there's something about it where they're not quite seen as refugees in the same way yet. I think that, that that shift will come. But in the meantime, I think getting companies to understand how they can play a role is useful. And the Open Money Initiative is, is providing a window into how money works uh, in Venezuela and, and what people can do. And, you know, hearing them talk, I mean, I know that, for example, you know, designing, you know, open source apps that run on older phones that would allow people to, like, for example, receive different kinds of digital assets, whether it's like Zelle credits or RTM credits or Bitcoin, and then exchange them into Bolivars, building an app that would do all of that in one would be fantastic. So, so coming to an understanding of these things and then going back to the industry and saying, here's what people need, I think is a really, really valuable design research thing that the Open Money Initiative is doing and that HRF would love to support in in other countries around the world too. So I want to switch the topic now to North Korea, Mm -hmm. which you know is personally very interesting to me because I'm of North Korean Korean heritage, but partially North Korean. 
So, so far, what we've been discussing is all the ways that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are good for evading like surveillance states or oppressive regimes. But that is actually also the aspect that makes it good for a country like North Korea to evade sanctions. And in general, I just feel like that country, when, when we're talking about how Bitcoin uh, can be used against author- authoritarian regimes is the one like outlier simply because North Koreans don't have access to the internet, so they can't really uh, use Bitcoin against the regime. So um, is that just going to have to be the way that it's going to be? Because actually so far, what's going on there is that North Korea itself, the government is benefiting from Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, so, so what do you, how do you think Bitcoin can help that situation? Well, I think when it comes to North Korea, I think we have to look at how the government sustains itself. And at the end of the day, it's about power and control and fear. Now, it is true that the North Korean government has figured out, is very clever, is very smart. They've figured out that having a sophisticated cyber warfare capacity is very important, right? So um, putting money even aside for a second, they've been very successful in hacking public infrastructure in South Korea. Of course, we all know about uh, you know the, the Sony hacks that you know ricocheted across America many Christmases ago. Um, there's all kinds of sabotage attacks that they've done internationally that yeah, they've been quite cry. effective in. Exactly. Um, now, when it comes to money, uh, you know, yes, it, it definitely seems like from what we've what we've observed that the North Korean government has figured out if they if they rob cryptocurrency exchanges, um, that 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 can be an effective way for them to steal money that they need. But generally speaking, I think from a bird's eye view, virtually all of the money that the uh, North Korean government runs on is 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 in the form of dollars and uh, renminbi and um, their own money. Uh, Bitcoin makes up a very small percentage uh, of of the ability of the North Korean government to hold on to control. I think long term, Bitcoin as a as a decentralized form of money that will inevitably seep into North Korea in a way that the government cannot stop at the end of the day uh, will only be a bad thing for the North Korean government. Wait, you mean to the people? Absolutely. Satellite access already. So today, there is satellite coverage over North Korea. If you look at Blockstream, if you look at the map on their website. So if I had a, if I had a, like a small satellite device, I can send and receive Bitcoin transactions in the middle of North Korea without any internet. That's a start. Is that something that y- the Human Rights Foundation would try to do? That is something. I mean, how would they get liquid? Like, I think what, anyone what who's do doing do that probably Bitcoin? wouldn't say that on a on a on a podcast. Um, what I, what I will say is that there is liquidity, massive liquidity in China and at the Chinese border of of, of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is immediately valuable in Chinese border cities. So I, I'm just painting a hypothetical here, but um, if you have if you North Koreans are the most creative and entrepreneurial people in the world. They're the most bold and creative. They will do anything they can to survive. Wait, really? North I feel Koreans, like they've been totally brainwashed. Despite all They're odds. Not, how, they can have, be, how can I'll they be explain. creative? They, so the North they were Korean not trained to be creative. I know, exactly. But, the, but they are incredible. The ones that I've met, the people who've escaped, used so much, not just bravery, but ingenuity, cleverness. I mean... These these are people who don't have the tools we have. They don't have the freedoms we have, and they have to figure it out anyway. And I'm just saying that they 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 figure it out. They, they've they've been so successful in just exploiting the tiniest little uh, like slivers of freedom to 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 maximize the well being for their family and their friends. Um, and and I wouldn't rule, I wouldn't bet against them. Let's put it that yeah. way. From no, I North agree Korean with you with the defectors for sure. I would never amazing. bet against. I'm not talking about the them. government. I'm talking the people of North Korea right. are are going to 
really like turn lemonade out of lemons. The, the point I'm saying is that over time, as more and more equipment gets into North Korea that can send and receive information over the internet, and as there already exists a way to send and receive Bitcoin in North Korea, and as things like open dimes, which is a way of like physically trading Bitcoin like, like in physical cash, potentially popularize, um, and as, as, as cryptocurrency in Bitcoin continues to increase in popularity in China, um, it, 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 it's only a matter of time before this stuff seeps into North Korea and starts eating away at the government's um, control over money. One of the more interesting things that I heard from a North Korean defector was from Young Ho, who you met at the Oslo yeah. Freedom Forum. Taeyong he was Ho, amazing. Ho is the highest ranking diplomat to ever escape from North Korea. And I asked him a question because I had heard that in 2009, the North Korean government scrapped its currency and introduced a new currency completely, meaning people who had saved for decades in cash – uh, that pile of money under their bed was all of a sudden useless. And I was so curious about this. And Taeyong Ho, of course, was was there and a very high-ranking official, so he knew all about this. It's never been reported in the English media, but I, I wanted to learn from him about what exactly happened. And you know, he was basically saying that the economic minister of unity, or, or whatever they, they called him, um, after this happened, uh, the plan didn't work as as predicted. Basically, people were so despondent over this that they just didn't go to the markets for like a day or two. That's about, about as much protest as they could muster. They just didn't go to sell their wares because they were so depressed about what had happened to their savings. And because of this, it was like a period of depressed economic activity, according to Mr. Tay. And several days later... Kim Jong-il had the uh, Minister of Economic Unity uh, you know, executed with an AK-47, is what he told me, which I thought was pretty shocking. But this is a, or this par is a, for the course there. Yeah, but this is, this is a story about how the government is trying to hold on control of the population through manipulating money. And at the end of the day, Bitcoin will prevent them from doing that. So it might be a very far-off thing, but I, I can't imagine that Bitcoin, like in, in, a, in a sort of a, an umbrella of, you know, net uh, kind of impact way is positive for the North Korean government. Um, I mean, maybe short term, fine, uh, but long term, it's 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 a technology that eats away and destroys authoritarianism. Um, because at the end of the day, all authoritarians hold on to control over their people through financial control. I love it. Okay, hopefully, hopefully, you're right that this will happen over the long term. Um, so I want to ask just sort of generally about regulation because so I had multiple questions on this, but I'm going to try to wrap it into one. So we've seen local Bitcoins disabling cash ads, halting operations in Iran. And presumably these are functions that I think you, you know, would advocate for and could help people fight authoritarian regimes. So in general, how do you think regulation in the crypto space should be handled? Well, not like that. I I think there's a lot of fear. Um, and European regulators seem to be uh, the, the worst offenders at the moment. It's really sad to see free countries crack down the hardest on this new technology, even harder than dictatorships. It's bizarre. Um, but, you know, the Finnish government has got to realize that when it basically forces a company like local bitcoins to, you know, whether it's complying by orders from the American government or not, when, when it force or EU orders or whatever, when it forces a company to cut off services in a country like Iran, that it's cutting off a lifeline that's helping people. I wish they would look at it like, how can we help Iranians as opposed to how can we comply with these draconian economic policies? I, I think that this is just the beginning. I think that 
centralized exchanges. I don't know if you've seen this, but over the last few days, several other platforms have closed off access to U.S. users. Uh, yeah. And I think you're going to start seeing this more and more. And it, it's a phase we're going to go through where – at first, governments just for a long time, of course, didn't understand or didn't know about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, and and then they sort of laughed it off. And now they're starting to take it seriously, you know. And now they're they're going to start to 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 crack down a little bit. I think the worst is obviously yet to come um, when when it starts actually eating away at their power. But we may not be there for for a little while. Um, but but I think you're going to start to see more and more uh, attacks. I mean, India has already you know really restricted the ability of exchanges to operate in that country. Obviously. Not a great thing to see in the world's largest democracy, really anti-innovation and kind of tragic. Um, but you're going to see this happen in Europe. And, you know, maybe through the good work of people like Coin Center, um, maybe the U.S. government will, will, will not do the, the worst things that it could do. And maybe it'll be a little more open-minded. And I do have some hope that the U.S. government will be a little more open-minded than, than these European and Indian regulators based on just conversations I've had and things I've heard from U.S. regulators, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, I, I think it's unquestionably a bad thing to cut off technology access to people living under dictatorships, and I, I hope that companies see that. And uh, I've certainly talked to other um, – I guess more able just because of that they're smaller and more nimble, but you know, companies like, um, for example, Paxful or, uh, companies, uh, like for example, there's like BISC, for example. And and what are those? Doing? These, these are, these are sort of more, we'll say peer to peer marketplaces, more sort of decentralized exchanges, um, where, where people rely less on a, on an intermediary in, 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 in a setup like BISC. Um, but basically these people are like super excited about being able to provide access to like users in places like Iran. So when one exchange gets shut down, the others I think are, are reacting in an interesting way. Um, so I certainly hope that companies can do what they can to fight off the, the regulation and keep services alive in these countries that need it. So you just mentioned a couple of companies, um, but in general, like which crypto companies or projects are working in areas that you think are the most promising for human rights purposes? Well, I mean, look, it's it's true to say that even though local bitcoins has um, stopped its you know, services in Iran, that it is overwhelmingly the, the most important company in the world when it comes to uh, providing liquidity and ability to turn Bitcoin and other, you know, digital assets into local money. Uh, it is just absolutely so important in a country like Venezuela, um, critical. Um, so important uh, in 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 other countries. I mean, it's it's fairly dominant in places like Nigeria. If you interview people there, uh, fairly dominant in Southeast Asia, uh, very important in East Asia. So I think I think local bitcoins is kind of a, a real lifeline right now. So I, I hope we can figure out ways to support them and help them, you know, fend off more regulation because people really at the moment need their service. I mean, it's just sort of network effect and that they were there first um, and that people trust local Bitcoins as a brand in these places. Uh, but it's, it's really kind of amazing to watch the, the volume like in these places, just to give one example today, the, the volume of exchange in local Bitcoins from Bitcoin to Bolivar is, is multiple times that of the Caracas uh, stock exchange. Yeah, I saw you and, wrote that. Yeah, I mean, and I guess it's a low bar because who's you know investing in Venezuelan stock market? But it's a paradigm shift, right? And probably one of many. Like in the future, crypto exchanges will be much larger than stock markets. Like I think 
this is the first example. This isn't just like some hypothetical I came up with. I'm reporting an actual fact. So yes, it's in an extreme economic example, a dystopian one, I would say. But I think things are going to get worse before they get better in a lot of places. And again, cryptocurrency is going to be a serious alternative option for folks. All right. So I think um, the last questions I have for you are just about like where people can learn more about Mm -hmm. you and HRF, but also... I noticed, so HRF accepts Bitcoin for donations. Yes. How popular is it for people to do that? Over time. And then do you like immediately convert it or do you keep the Bitcoin? Yeah. So these are um, interesting questions. So we started receiving Bitcoin donations in uh, 2014 and um, they've been very helpful over the years. And I certainly would encourage people uh, to send them to us. Uh, We generally have a policy of converting the Bitcoin into dollars to spend them on operating programs. Okay. Uh, but if you write us with, with a note with your intention to, that, that you'd like us to, to keep it, this is something I'm looking into with the help of certain people uh, of basically setting up a, a, a sort of an ability for you to make a donation in Bitcoin to us, for example, that we would agree to hold on to for a certain amount of time. So I, I really like this idea and I'm certainly if you know listeners want to help me design this, uh, give legal advice, etc., I would very much welcome that. Um, you can reach me at alex at hrf.org or on Twitter at Gladstein, uh, my handle. Um, so we we would very be very much be open to to like long, say long term Bitcoin donations and donations of, of other cryptocurrencies if uh, if that's something you're interested in. And I would just lay out like as a final thought like the the four things that we would like to that the human rights foundation would really like to do uh, in the cryptocurrency space so number one would be design research much like what the open money initiative is doing we'd love to replicate and share some of those findings and uh, procedures around the world so that people can understand what's happening in these countries and that we can design better tools for people who need them. That's number one. Number two would be public education. So we're doing a lot of like public education about Bitcoin cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, in, in medium formats uh, and in events and conferences that, that are not cryptocurrency related. So for example, when I write something in time or CNN, or I speak at an economist conference, I think that's in many ways very effective compared to like just sort of speaking to the same small group of people, right. which I, mean, I know and love, but like we really got to get out to the 99% that don't know anything about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. So public right. education is totally key. A third area would be providing opportunities for, let's say in the case of Bitcoin, core development. So currently core development is um, something that's that's done by not enough people. And a lot of that is because there are just certain niche resources you need to understand uh, to learn how to code and to meaningfully contribute to Bitcoin Core, for example. So we'd love to try and support people from around the world to come to some of the classes of people like Jimmy Song or Justin Moon and, or, or Chaincode, et cetera, and be able to have that experience. So that's something I'd love to work on is, is sort of diversifying, whether it be um, from, from ge- geographical diversity, gender diversity, et cetera. And, and the fourth area, which I think is kind of most interesting, um, is operational security for activists. I mean, if they're authentically, and I can tell you they are authentically interested in receiving Bitcoin payments and sending them as opposed to carrying bags of cash on a bus or, you know, being reliant and fearful about their bank account, they they do want to use Bitcoin, but they need to know how to use it and they need to know how to use it safely or as safe as possible. And that's not like easy to find information. You really have to kind of piece that together. Uh, And most of these folks are brave entrepreneurial activists not technologists right so they need like easy to understand guides and mentorship 
with regard to Bitcoin operational security. So, you know, we'd like to partner with you and anyone else on uh, on these on these areas of design research into global cryptocurrency adoption, public education about Bitcoin, um, diversifying the people who are doing the core development, um, and doing operational security for people who actually want to use the stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Alex and the Human Rights Foundation, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you haven't yet taken the Unchained survey, now is the time. Go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash Unchained Survey 2019 to tell us how we can do better at Unchained. And don't forget, those who answer the survey can enter to win one of five free Casa Bitcoin Lightning Nodes, plus a free year of Casa's Gold Membership. Thanks, Casa, for donating. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.